You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Will the Real Dr. Brown Please Stand Up? But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about the famous NY logo of the New York Yankees baseball team. If you aren't familiar with the logo, it consists of an N that is bisected by a Y right down the middle. Oddly, the logo was not originally designed for the New York Yankees. So my question for you today is, what was the logo originally intended for? What was it designed for? And here are your five choices. Was it one, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of New York City? Or two, to honor the first New York City patrolman shot in the line of duty? Or three, to affix to all of the doors at the base of the Statue of Liberty? Or four, as the logo for the New York Mutual Insurance Company? Or five, to celebrate the grand opening of the famed New Yorker Hotel. Again, the New York Yankees New York logo was not originally designed for the team. What was the original purpose of the logo? Was it one, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of New York City? Two, to honor the first New York City patrolman shot in the line of duty? Three, to affix to all the doors at the base of the Statue of Liberty? four as a logo for the New York Mutual Insurance Company, or five to celebrate the grand opening of the famed New Yorker Hotel. And as always, I'll let you ponder over these choices, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, Will the Real Dr. Brown Please Stand Up? And I thought I'd start by asking you if you've ever seen the 1991 movie, Doc Hollywood. While not one of history's greatest films, I must admit that I really did enjoy it. I think that's because I found it reminiscent of many Hollywood's innocent, feel-good movies of yesteryear. Now, if you don't remember the flick, or if you've never seen it, let me give you the briefest of overviews. Michael J. Fox, in one of his best roles, I think, uh, plays a big city doctor who wrecks his car while driving through a small rural town. So he's forced to do community service as punishment, and the townspeople fall in love with the doctor, and of course he ultimately falls in love with the town and its people, and chooses to stay. I have to be honest, I haven't seen this movie in probably 15 years, so I hope I remembered that correctly. Now the story that I'm about to tell you is very similar, but as with most of the stories I tell, there is something highly unusual about it. So let's zip back through time to a sunny day in July of 1967. Here we find a 43-year-old doctor named Reed L. Brown driving through the small town of Groveton, Texas, population 1,187 people. Brown, along with his 23-year-old wife, Sharon, they had just been married a couple of years prior, and their young daughter decided to stop at a local drugstore for refreshments. 
That's when 12-year-old Randy Warsham showed up with a badly gashed leg. Now, the town had been without a doctor for months, and the nearest medical services were more than 20 miles away. So Doc Brown jumped into action. He patched the boy up, and then the townspeople begged him to stay. And he did. It turns out that Groveton had been unable to hold on to a doctor since their former doctor moved away nine years earlier. Others had come for short periods of time, but none chose to stay. One of them turned out to be a drug addict and ultimately died from a gunshot wound. Four other doctors were foreigners, and the locals complained that they had problems understanding them with their thick accents. Dr. Brown was offered the same exact deal as all the other doctors. He received six months free rent and an empty dry goods store to set his shop up in. There was no question that Doc Brown was the best thing that had happened to the small town in quite some time. He loved his job and the people loved him back. He treated every patient as an individual and he saw 40 to 50 patients each day. He worked 10 to 12 hours each day and it didn't matter if it was day, night, weekend, holiday, he worked them all. It didn't take long for word to spread to the surrounding communities about this great new doctor and his practice grew rapidly. The waiting room was always full, and he provided medical care to the sheriffs, city officials, businessmen, farmers, loggers, welfare patients, and the average Joe. The doctor found a malignant tumor in the neck of a man that army doctors had missed. He saved the life of one man with congestive heart failure, but best of all, his fees were relatively low. He charged $5 for a house call and $3 for an office visit. And things just kept getting better for Doc Brown. He was given staff privileges at the county hospital, and he was asked by health officials to assist in a measles vaccination drive. He became a member of the Lions Club, and he spearheaded a drive for the building of a local hospital. He delivered four babies in one month. When there was a critical or a terminal case that he couldn't deal with, he referred the patient to physicians in Lufkin, which is about 35 miles away, or to specialists in Galveston. But, as I had initially said, Doc Brown was not Doc Hollywood. Something was about to go wrong, terribly wrong. Five months after setting up practice in Groveton, his medical career came to an abrupt halt. That date was December 8th of 1967. That was when the Texas Rangers, along with an official from the State Board of Medical Examiners, walked into his office and handed him a subpoena. You see, Dr. Brown, the great Doc Brown, was not a doctor at all. His real name was Freddie Michael Brandt, and he was born in Rosen, Louisiana on September 5th of 1923. Now, while real doctors spend what seems like an eternity in medical school, Freddie Brandt's formal education ended, get this, in the fifth grade. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't know anything about medicine. While he was serving as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army during World War II, Brandt did receive first aid training. It was there that he also received his high school equivalency diploma. Now, if that's not bad enough, on top of having very little education, it was also learned that Brandt, get this, was an escapee from a Louisiana prison. 
He had been sentenced to a 12-year term for robbing a bank back in 1949. But Brandt was determined to turn his life around, and he spent his time in prison very wisely. He read quite a bit. He took correspondence courses. He even studied law. But more importantly to the story, he was able to capitalize on his Army first aid training by assisting visiting doctors in the prison hospital, and he was often called upon to sew up knife slashes and other minor wounds. He was paroled from prison on May 11th, of 1956. At this point, he moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he obtained employment at the Physician and Surgeon's Hospital. And while he was there, he legitimately worked as a laboratory and x-ray technician. That he was qualified to do. And he did this for a number of doctors, including one Dr. Reed L. Brown. That's the real Doc Brown. And Doc Brown allowed him to assist with deliveries, surgery, and examinations, although later in court testimony, Dr. Brown claimed that this was totally untrue. Brandt made photostatic. Now, there's a term you haven't heard much uh, lately. Let's say photocopies of both the real Dr. Brown's medical license and his medical degree. Brandt worked with Dr. Brown for four years. That's from 1958 to 1962, at which point the real Doc Brown left the hospital to set up his own practice. Then, two years later, Brandt came across an ad for psychologists and medical doctors at the Terrell State Hospital in Texas. Knowing that he could never get a job there as an uneducated ex-convict, Freddie Brandt assumed the role of Dr. Reed L. Brown, and he was able to secure a position as a psychiatric intern there in 1964. Two years later, based on both the photocopies of Dr. Brown's documents and the time that he worked at the hospital, the state of Texas granted Brandt a license to practice medicine on February 15th of 1966. Brandt worked at the hospital for three years, and during this time he signed more than 100 certificates of commitment and he testified in a number of court cases. Brandt was certain that he saved a number of lives while he was working there, and he felt that the mentally ill in his ward responded well to his treatment, and many were ultimately discharged from the hospital. Shortly after leaving the hospital, he took that trip through Groveton, where he successfully worked as a licensed medical doctor. That is until the day when the Texas Rangers walked through the door with that dreaded subpoena. Amazingly, his wife never ever suspected that he wasn't a real doctor. Yet Brandt lived for years in fear that his deception would soon be uncovered. So you're probably wondering, how did they catch the guy? Well, it turns out it's just a tiny little error that he made. Brandt made the mistake of ordering drugs for his patients from the identical pharmaceutical firm that the real Dr. Brown used. And they happened to be using this newfangled device. Get this, they were using a computer and the computer discovered that they were billing Dr. Brown to two different addresses in two different states. They were confused, so they contacted the real Dr. Brown, who in turn immediately called the medical authorities in Texas. The warrant for his arrest was from Kaufman County, Texas. That's where the Terrell Psychiatric Hospital is located. And he was charged with perjuring himself by swearing under oath during those court hearings that he was a medical doctor and, of course, for forging documents. 
he was released four days later on $10,000 bond. That's about $65,000 in today's money. So you're probably wondering, where did he get this money from? It actually came from his supporters back in Groveton. You see, even though he was not a real doctor, the people of Groveton still wanted him back. The townspeople rushed to his side and they offered him support in any way that they could. Signed petitions requested the courts take into consideration you know, all that good that Freddie Brandt had done for the town. Some suggested they raise money to send him to medical school, you know, really send him to medical school, but that was impossible due to his criminal record. Others suggested that he come back to the town as an administrator or possibly as a technician when the hospital finally opened. He did return back to Groveton one week after his arrest, and he was given a hero's welcome. It has been estimated that Brandt saw between, get this, two and 3,000 patients while he was playing doctor in Groveton. Amazingly, there was not one report of a single medical mistake made by him. Mrs. William Bach, a licensed pharmacist at the town's only drugstore, was quoted as saying, I filled prescriptions for a good many years, and everything he prescribed seemed right to me. She added, if there were any adverse reactions, I never knew about them. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. While he was out on bail for perjury and forgery charges in Kaufman County, Brandt learned that the grand jury in Trinity County, that's where Groveton is located, had chosen not to press charges against him. He later found out that this was incorrect. It turns out that all 12 members of the grand jury were not present at the time, so they couldn't act on the case. They later reconvened and handed down two indictments. Back in jail, he posted bond of $5,000 for a charge of forgery and an additional $2,000 for practicing without a license. Now, there was some good news that came out of all this publicity. While he was awaiting trial in both counties, he was offered three jobs in Dallas, all based on his real qualifications. And in February of 1968, he chose to take a position as a laboratory technician at a Dallas clinic. The trial in Kaufman County got underway in May of 1968. Five members of the jury said that they each had received a four-page unsigned letter of support. Each document said to pass it on to a friend and were signed either Citizens for Freddie Brandt or the people of Kaufman County. Can we say jury tampering? Hmm. But the judge let the case go on. The jury became deadlocked and the judge declared a mistrial. Now, back in the Trinity County case, Brandt was offered a plea deal. The lawyers had agreed that Brandt would plead guilty in exchange for a fine for practicing medicine without a license. He would be given a probationary sentence for the forgery charge. Yet, for some crazy reason, Brandt refused to steal, and he chose to plead innocent. 
And I honestly don't know if this is a good move or a bad move on his part. And that's because I was unable to find any further mention of the case in the press. While some recent authors claim that no local jury would convict him at the time and he got off scot-free, I did find one contradictory document. A man named Robert Bruce had been convicted of murdering his wife in 1965 and he was declared insane. After being sent to a mental hospital, Dr. Reed Brown, who we now know as Freddie Brandt, arranged his release from the institution. This document states that he, quote, was subsequently determined to be an imposter and was convicted of perjury and practicing medicine without a recorded license. He was given a sentence of five years under the perjury charge. That's the end of the quote. When I tell this story to others, they wonder how Freddie Brandt was able to get away with it for so long. My guess is that for what he lacked in medical education, he made up for with just plain common sense, a willingness to listen to his patients, sympathy, working long hours, generosity, and probably most important was that he had an abundance of confidence. One thing that we can be certain of is that Freddie Brandt never played doctor again. He was 83 years old when he passed away on October 30th of 2006. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. I do believe Kay is right. Why, John Fairchild must be out of his mind. Yes. First he comes in to make some sort of a confession and he's nice as pie. Then all of a sudden he jumps to his feet like a crazy man and runs off. And leaves poor Kay sitting there like a bump on a log. I wonder what in the world it is that he's trying to tell her. I'm sure I don't know, but if he were my husband, I'd have had it out with him long ago. Now, Mary, don't get so excited. Let's listen to Stepmother tomorrow. I sure will. That's one of my baby thrills. Using cashmere bouquet talcum powder is another. That's what I say. Cashmere bouquet talcum powder gives me that voluptuous feeling. And who is there among you who doesn't delight in luxury? Well, cashmere bouquet talcum powder is such an inexpensive luxury. You don't have to be sparing with it. Dust cashmere bouquet talcum powder generously all over your body before you dress. Lightly smooth it over every ripple to add a silken softness to your skin. It dries up lingering moisture after a bath and provides a film of protection that's a blissful comfort to a chafed skin. But of course, the most appealing quality of cashmere bouquet talcum powder is the enchanting fragrance men love. A fragrance you can make your very own today. Ask for cashmere bouquet talcum powder in 10 cent or larger sizes at any toilet goods counter. That commercial's from the August 20th, 1940 episode of K. Fairchild's Stepmother. This particular episode was titled John's Disinterest. Uh, the series ran on the CBS radio network from 1938 to 1942, and each show was open with the same slogan, Can a Stepmother Successfully Raise Another Woman's Children? That pretty much sums up the whole premise of the show. The name Cashmere Bouquet has been around since 1872. That was when Colgate & Company introduced the first milled perfume toilet soap. The product was incredibly successful, so the Cashmere Bouquet name was applied to a number of other tie-in products, such as hand lotion and the talcum powder that you heard here. 
Colgate-Palmolive made the product until 1995. That's when they sold the cashmere bouquet talcum powder, along with a number of other so-called orphan products, to the Steffen Company for $12 million. This is a really bad investment on the company's part. That's because they were never able to come close to the sales volume that Colgate-Palmolive had, and Steffen's total annual sales volume has since plummeted. Cashmere Bouquet is now marketed in three scents, their classic floral, lavender, and baby powder. Sadly, the tin cans that I remember the product coming in from when I was a kid are now plastic, but then I guess everything is plastic today. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. And today's tidbits all have one thing in common. They all involve the actions of children. Our first story took place on January 21st of 1916 in Reading, Pennsylvania. And that's where a 10-year-old girl named Florence Miller was awarded damages in her lawsuit against a 14-year-old boy named Oscar Lenhart. Oscar claimed in court that Florence had tattled on him to their teacher. So in an act of revenge, he waited for her after school and pushed Florence into a gutter, injuring her arm. The resulting injury supposedly caused cancer, which I doubt, anyway, supposedly caused cancer to develop in her arm, and then it had to be amputated. The suit filed by Florence's dad on her behalf sought $12,960.52 in damages. That's about $275,000 in today's money. That total came from adding together the $10,000 value of the farm that Oscar's late father had bequeathed him upon his mother's passing, plus $2,000 to Florence's father for loss of her services, and finally $960.52 in medical expenses. In the end, Florence was awarded $913.54, which I presume was to cover the medical costs. Our next story appeared in the press on March 28th of 1957. Seven of the friends of a 12-year-old blue-eyed blonde-haired girl from Detroit, Michigan, became the proud new owners of Pedigree Puppies. Six of the friends received miniature French poodles, and another one got a German Shepherd puppy. Now, this doesn't sound like a big deal until you learn that the little girl had purchased all these dogs for her friends for a whopping cost of $1,095. That's about $8,400 in today's money. So you're probably wondering where a child of 12 comes up with that kind of cash. She got it from her dad, but don't get the idea that he was a generous lover of dogs. In fact, he was the complete opposite. He refused to let his daughter have a puppy. So she figured that if she couldn't have a puppy, then all of her friends should. In that way, she could visit each of her friends and be near the dogs that she loves so much. But there was one major problem with her plan. Not only did her dad not like dogs, he didn't like banks. He kept all of his savings in a strong box in the house. His daughter found the key, took the family's savings, and purchased the puppies. Hmm, my guess is that her plan to purchase additional puppies for her friends came to a sudden halt at this point. And our last story takes place on January 25th of 1971 in Springfield, Massachusetts. 
This is where we find divorcee Madeline Sasson returning home from a night out at the movies to find her six children in the care of a social worker, not the babysitter that she had hired. Now, the reason for the change in the supervision of the children started earlier in the evening, and that's when her 10-year-old son Donald smelled smoke coming out of the bathroom. Now, Donald knew from television and from a demonstration at the county fair that this was not cigarette smoke that he was smelling. No, it was marijuana. And that's when Donald went into his junior crime-busting mode. First, he paid his nine-year-old brother Joseph a dollar to snatch the plastic bag of pot that he had spotted on the bathroom shelf. But Joseph had been warned by the babysitter not to come downstairs, so he subcontracted the work to his five-year-old brother Michael. So Michael snatched the bag of weed and he handed it over to Donald, you know, the one who had sniffed out the contraband in the first place. So then Donald made an excuse to go outside, but instead he ran down the street to a neighboring store and he called the police. Within minutes, officers arrived and Donald turned the evidence over. The 16-year-old babysitter and her three teenage male friends were arrested and charged with violation of narcotic laws. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you what the famous New York Yankees NY logo was originally designed for, and your choices were the following. Was it one, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of New York City? Or was it two, to honor the first New York City policeman shot in the line of duty? Or was it three, to affix to all the doors at the base of the Statue of Liberty? Or four, as a logo for the New York Mutual Insurance Company? Or was it five, to celebrate the grand opening of the famed New Yorker Hotel. So which one did you choose? At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, Sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Few people know this, but the insignia was designed by Tiffany and Company in 1877, and it was struck as a Medal of Honor that was issued to Officer John McDowell. The New York City Police Department awarded it to him for a January 12, 1877 incident during which Officer McDowell arrested a burglar and he was shot in the gun battle that ensued. So he was the first New York City officer to be shot in the line of duty. That was choice number two. The medal was solid silver and about four inches in overall size. It said Valor on the front, and on the back it said, Presented to Patrolman John McDowell for bravery in pursuance of resolutions of the Board of Police of New York, January 12, 1877. The logo was adopted by the Yankees in 1909, that's 32 years later, and that was to compete with the orange NY symbol that was used by their rival, the New York Giants. I should mention that the Yankees were not named the Yankees at this time. The team had been founded in 1901 as the Baltimore Orioles, 
When they picked up and moved to New York City two years later, they became the New York Highlanders. But for some reason, the New York press kept referring to them with the nickname the Yankees, and it stuck. So the Yankees name was made official in 1913. I hope you enjoyed today's story on Freddie Brandt, you know, the fake MD, as well as our question of the day on the New York Yankees logo, listening to our retro sponsor, which was Cashmere Bouquet Talcum Powder, and the three News of the Weird Past tidbits. I have to be honest, I liked all three equally, which is unusual uh, when I do these. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman. They're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. Now, before I close, I'd just like to apologize for taking so long to post this podcast. Uh, when people start sending me, you know, messages, you know, where is the next one, I know that it's time to do it. Unfortunately, I've been really, really busy, you know, between uh, final exams at school and then, of course, uh, you know, working on my house that I've had no time. Uh, I did rip out a staircase in my house about a week ago, and I knew I couldn't record this podcast until I finished that staircase, and it is done. Uh, I did have some time this morning, and I did post some of the images up on Facebook if you'd like to see what I'm doing. Uh, it is a lot of work. I've been doing it for about a year, but I really do enjoy it. Anyway, I thank you very much for your patience and for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Uh, take care. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.